Carmel Bell, the journey of being a medical intuitive and breaking society's standards. Join us in this exclusive interview with world-renowned medical intuitive, Carmel Bell, as she discloses her fascinating journey of becoming a medical intuitive and the struggles that came along with keeping up with society's standards. Carmel shares her experiences of navigating through the challenges of being different and not conforming to societal norms. She opens up about the sacrifices she had to make in order to live up to society's expectations and how this affected her ability to truly be and do what she desired. Through her story, Carmel inspires us to break free from societal constraints and trust in our own intuition, no matter how unconventional it may seem. Don't miss its insightful conversation with one of the most respected medical intuitives in the world. Welcome to the Wellness Driven Life Show, where you're about to go on a wellness-driven ride. Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm so excited to have our guest here with us again today. This is her second time on the Wellness Driven Life Show. Carmel Bell is a specialized, she specializes, excuse me, in not staying alive. And she'll explain more about that. She also has been a medical intuitive for about 40 years. And that's a profession that shows her, not the other way around. Please help me welcome Miss Carmel Bell. Hi, Carmel. Hi, April. Hi, April. It's great to be back on. It is. It's such a pleasure to have you here again on the platform. Welcome, welcome. Today, we're going to talk about some really deep experiences of yours, what it's really been like on your journey. Mm, yeah, that's, that's really fascinating because so many people want to be medical intuitives they i think that there is a certain power and prestige that that comes with it but mm. if if they ask me to train them and i speak to them i say tell me about your life and it's been like a good life good life an interesting life but nothing that stands out or gives them insightful knowledge into anything, I immediately know that this person is actually not cut out to be a medical intuitive. Mm. You, know, you need to 
more than the ability to see energy uh, and to hear spirit voice and to look into a person's body and to connect with things. I mean, all those skills are wonderful and I can teach you all those. But to have the compassion and the understanding that you need is mm. something that can only be learnt through experience and um, usually bitter experience, I, I will say, like experience that brings you to your knees. Yeah. Brings you to your knees. That's a really good way of describing it. And just living life in general. Carmel, do you find more often that not that people who are more well suited to the medical intuitive position or, or honing in on those sort of skills are people who are, are maybe older or can you describe them a little bit more of what you find to be key aspects of people um well they're not necessarily older though that is the general rule of thumb just because they've they've had time to go through tragedies um i guess which is like an awful thing you don't wish that on anybody in fact i prefer nobody ever again needed to learn this profession but um mostly female because females are more prepared to dig into their intuition and to listen and to mm. not be not be skeptical, uh, they need to be open-minded because it does challenge basically everything that you are are raised with. You know, for for instance, people who are um, agnostic still have a basis in in a in doctrine i mean their doctrine is that they believe in nothing right you know, and well you know there you can never you can't live a life without having a belief even if that belief is nothing yeah i'm glad I, you point that out <laughs> yeah. even if it's nothing yeah i love that yeah. You have to have that that belief, but I think you know that they need to realise that it's it's a whole lot easier to live if you do believe in a greater power, because life wasn't meant to be smooth. It's just not designed to be smooth. Right. We won't, smooth. We, we won't grow. The world would just stagnate. Like all the inventions we have, like I don't know, X rays and MRIs and blood tests and yeah. tires for the car and bridles for horses and farming techniques all of those things came out of experience and learning you know you you have to have you have to have that drama like why would a farmer improve their cultivation technique if they didn't lose crops in a drought or a flood or whatever and then they go damn not gonna let that happen again so do i need to build a wall do i need to you know, mm -hmm. dig tunnels or, yeah. you know, kids start dropping out a mile a minute, you know, and yeah. um, so dentists go, what can we do? No yeah. drama, yeah. growth. You're 100%. I, I mean, even on my own personal self-evolution journey, if we want to call it that, it, it hasn't been without hardships where I'm questioning 
okay, this isn't mm. working. How do I improve? And yeah. it, and it it just is the we need the contrast, the yin and the yang, yeah. in order to improve. Now, I'm very curious. I mean, you're very you are an intuitive, and mm. you have touched the. I I don't know, and you can correct me if you want realms, dimensions that most people don't, they're not in tune with, yeah. right? They're, they just, they're not connected the way that you've been connected through various reasons, times. So given that, let's just say hypothetically that we have come to a point where we've evolved to such a state where we don't need as much of that, that contrast the light and the dark, the hardships, what would a world like that look like? And is that possible? No, it isn't possible. And a world that looked like that would actually start out beautifully and end up horrifically. And if you, like, I don't know, you know, I'm a reader and a watcher. I love to read, love to watch, and I specialise really in staying away from spiritual stuff because there's so much spiritual stuff in the, the normal world. You actually don't need, you don't need it. And there's a series called Firefly, hmm. which has been taken off the air now. It's discontinued. And I think Cohen, Joel Cohen, um, made it, and in it. There is a planet um, that they put what they call PAX machines that distributed through the whole atmosphere this really calming, peaceful drug. And then they populated the planet with people. They asked, you know, people to go there and all these people did. And they initially had this idyllic place and everyone was happy. Everyone was lovely. And then all of a sudden the planet like disappeared, it shut down and, and uh, its kind of location was forgotten. That's my kitten, by the way. I'm climbing the curtains. And then this breed of people came out or appeared in the universe called the Reavers. And the Reavers were the hardest, most harsh people you could ever meet. And the description given in the show is that they will rape you to your dead and then um, oh, no, kill you and then rape you until you're dead. And if you're lucky, they will do it in that order, right? Mm -hmm. And it was discovered by this crew on the spaceship that the Reavers actually came from this planet that was known as Serenity. Its planet name was Serenity. And mm -hmm. the reason the Reavers had developed is because everybody had become so passive and nice that nature mm. had forced that opposition and had wow. made the ultimate monsters, if you know what I mean. Like, so you've got the ultimate pacifists, the ultimate monsters on the same planet. And when they'd killed everybody on that planet, they left the planet. Mm. So that's very interesting. And when we start talking about this expression of, well, many different kinds of expressions, you know, we have the expression of love, we have the expression of hate. And, and I would, I would like to know, what do you think, 
we, I mean, we desire that. And if we start talking about good, bad, you know, is there really a good or a bad, or is it just expressions? Uh, I think you can classify it as both. There's definitely good expressions and bad expressions. I wouldn't call them wrong expressions because if you think about your life and your achievements, often the things that make people achieve is the desire or the, the, the need to prove to themselves or to other people that something can be done. And they often will only reach that point once they have been challenged so much that they feel like they're going to break if they mm. don't do it. Mm. So, you know, and that can be considered bad, of course, you know, like it's not something I encourage my, my children to do, but I also encourage my children when they're angry um, to admit that they're angry. Yeah. And, and then to find something purposeful to do with that anger. And, mm. you know, they've, they've done some amazing things out of anger that they've rechanneled and, and then they've learned to love. Mm. You know, I like that description of channeling that anger energy into something else, but doing something productive with it. That's not harmful to anyone, but you're right. I think that a lot of us have achieved incredible things through anger or upset, just that we feel unjust. And yeah. yet then it propels us and gives us the, the energy to want to do something and change something. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, without that energy, if we just accept everything, like take it on the chin, you know, I know sometimes I'll complain about things that happen and people will say to me, oh, you just accept yeah. it, go with the flow. And I think to myself, oh, um, okay, so I'm just going to sit here and go, everything's fine. It's cool. I don't mind if you, you know, jump all over my things because that's the way the universe intended it to be. <laughs> Yeah, so well, you yeah. you definitely make me laugh, Carmel. Thank you so yeah. much. Uh, yeah. Let's tell me. Let's go back a little bit, and and I'm going to invite the viewers, of course, again, to check out the first show, the first yeah. interview that we had together, because it really does leave some foundation for yeah. where we're at, where we're going to be going. But if you want to highlight just a little bit about, and not into detail because we did that in the first show, but go over just briefly where you came from so we know a little bit more about that and why it is that it has given you this, uh, this way of life of where you show up in society and what effect that has been for you. Let's set the tone with that. Well, you know, the, where I came from was I was given a task pre-birth to do this job 
And every time I started to look seriously at going somewhere else in my life, my life was stopped and then given back to me. When I say stopped, the universe worked out some wonderful way to kill me. The first way being, of course, you know, I managed to set myself on fire at four o'clock in the morning at four years of age. And, um, you know, that, that is where I came from. And in that experience, whilst I was dead, I was told that I was not going to become the doctor I wanted to become. I was going to become this, which was incredibly scary. And the interesting thing about the universe is that they put people into my path and they take people out of my path. Mm. Like my, my, for instance, my godfather uh, was a doctor and he absolutely loved me. My father was a pharmacist and my godfather and my father had actually been um, intelligence officers in the Second World War together. So they were mm. very close. And um, read that as spy. And um, <laughs> we're allowed to say that now because 50 years, more than 50 years after that, so we can actually tell people that now legally. Um, anyway, he loved me, absolutely loved me, and he was a doctor. And my first real uh, instance of doing medical intuition was he picked me up, came down to see me, we lived in the country, he picked me up and I touched his chest and I said to him, what's wrong with here? And he said, oh, nothing, sweetheart, don't worry about it. Well, two weeks later he died of a sudden cardiac arrest. Mm. Gone from, from my life. And, you know, that really set my world into a spin, losing Jerry, because he was one of my greatest advocates, I guess. And he was quite determined that I would be a doctor, even though I was four, like whenever I said I would do something, I've, I've always done it, whether I was four or 40. You know, I say I'm going to do it, I do it. And, um, you know, then I became very determined to be a vet, not a doctor. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Candy Apple Advocacy, the podcast for parents who want to advocate for their children's education. I'm Jim Mallard, and I'm here with my wife, Tabby. We've been through the trenches of raising kids in the school system and know how tough it can be, but we also know how essential it is to advocate for your child and their education. That's why we started this podcast, to share our experiences and insights with other parents to help them become more effective advocates for their children. On this podcast, we'll talk about everything from general education, general school advice, the school choices you have available to you, different education styles, individualized education plans, 504s, and all those key terms that you've heard but don't know what they are. We'll talk to experts. We'll also talk to parents and hear their stories. We'll share our stories with you and give you tools you need to be a strong advocate for your child and yourself. Whether you're a new parent or have been in the game for a while, we invite you to join our community. Let's advocate together. And um, at 15, uh, somehow, and nobody really understands how to this day that it happened, I'm one of six children, and my parents managed to forget me completely at Christmas time, completely. Like this child sitting there waiting for the Christmas gift and whatever, completely overlooked. 
overlooked. So they took me aside and gave me money and said when the shops opened, they would take me out and get something and they were quite upset. Well, I was very upset too. So I packed my bags, took the money they gave me and I left home and left school. And that ended my desire to become a vet and or a doctor or in fact anything. And I became a, a bikey. A <laughs> bikey. A bikey. Yes, because you, you love the boots. Boots and I all. do. Well, boots, boots is my nickname, has been my nickname since I was 14, and I pretty much wear nothing but boots. I do wear shoes when I'm going out or to a ball. I love going to balls, and I haven't found evening boots. <laughs> What's your favorite brand, Carmel? Oh, God, everything. everything. I love everything, everything. I have some extraordinary boots, like extraordinary boots, platform boots, flat boots, long boots. I don't have any thigh-high boots. I'm not really fond of thigh-high. Yeah, there's, there's a lot going on. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jafari is my current favourite. That's G-F-H-A-R-I. And they are a spectacular boot, mm. expensive though. Well, to me they're expensive. And, um, but they come in the most wonderful, like, um, oh, I don't know, you know, iridescent colours. Mm, colours, yeah. Well, yeah, I didn't mean to veer too far off track, but I, I share your love of boots, although I, d I don't have the extensive collection that I believe you may have. Oh, I do. But there's oh, still room for that. There's time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah there is. Yeah. There is. But, you know, it's easier to ride motorbikes and horses and so forth. Um, yeah. It's easier to do a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. It is. Dig in the garden, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, even now I'm wearing boots. Admittedly, they're rug boots because <laughs> it's cold here. But, you know, I, I love my boots and I'm not very comfortable in shoes. Hmm. So, you know, I didn't see, anyway, I didn't see my parents for about three years. Yeah, this story, you, I know that it is a huge pivotal mm. moment for you, Carmel, in your life, because you highlighted it in the, the last show. Mm. And so I know that it was one of those moments, defining times for you. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah. it was absolutely huge. I mean, imagine that, that when you're a teenager, a young teenager, everybody was telling telling you and your parents that you were insane and, mm -hmm. and you know, schizophrenic or something like that. And um, because <clears throat> I knew things that I shouldn't know, you know, I knew things like when people were lying to me I knew that they were lying and and um so that I began that. really early because your first encounter with death was at four years old yeah. and so would you say that that just started happening since your your death experiences yeah yeah absolutely I I would call people out on their their lies yeah. and the amount of people like you know I have stood there and and listened while you know my sisters or my mother in particular 
said to other people or to my other siblings, oh, you know, Carmel, she's a liar. And when I accidentally revealed something that I shouldn't have revealed, mm. and because I'm not really good at, I mean, I, I can obviously keep secrets a lot, but uh, when something should be common knowledge, I'm not very good at not sharing it, <laughs> shall we say. Uh, well, you know, and people don't, that, of course, that's extremely uncomfortable and people will go mm. to extremes to not mm. allow that uh, yeah. aspect of them for people not to view them as that yeah. you know so yeah. they'll go to we will as as human beings go to great extents to try to hide that those aspects of us yeah yeah i have actually had you know there was one episode of events in my life that actually involved my husband uh, god bless him and he's an amazing human he's a very lovely man and, and i love him deeply but he did something that was really, really, you know, just beyond the pale. And I said to him, you know, you really need to fess up to this. And he said, oh, I don't know that I can. I said, why not? And he said, because I don't want people to think that that's the kind of person I am. And I said, but you are that kind of person because you did it. How could you not be that kind of person? You did it. And that that is the trouble with it. A lot of people really... Do you think that there could be maybe a, a deeper reasoning for why people do the things that they do in the given moment during circumstances or Does anything to that? Doesn't Does matter. It really, Does it really matter? <laughs> I mean, like, you know, um, one of the bad things about, say, um, abusive people is that they often learn their abusive behaviour through being abused, right? Yeah. Now, I get that. I have compassion with that. I have been abused, mm. but I'm not an abusive person mm. because I didn't want to turn that around and share it. Yeah. You know, and yeah. you've got an IQ above, I don't know, let's, let's go for well, we're generous, above 95. <laughs> you know, you've got to have that figuring in there that just because it happened to you doesn't mean it should happen to everyone. Yeah. Right. Well, and we're responsible and yeah. yeah, absolutely. You, you, you rise above that yeah. and not everybody is interested in doing that. That's for no, sure. They're not. Yeah. And I am aware of that. And I, I have compassion for that. There have been, difficult things in my life that I have done, particularly when I was riding, you know, a bike. It's been difficult things that I've done uh, that I I wish I had not done. And I am, uh, you know, I'm aware that they were less than stellar. Mm. And I have done what I can to make amends for those things. Like if, if I still knew the people involved, I have apologised deeply. If I haven't known the people that were involved, I have put it to the universe and I've tried to help other people. And, you know, like my life has been given in service to 
helping people, not because of these things, but because that's that's what it's there for. I mean, for instance, when I left home at 15, I left with nothing but the money I got for Christmas and what I could carry in a bag because I was on foot, right? So I had very little clothes. I had I had I I didn't even take my toothbrush. I had nothing. And anyway, I found a place uh, that I could go to live, mm-hmm. and I knew I you know oh, like I had to get a job so I could afford to pay for it. But I had no bedding and all that sort of stuff, so I went snow dropping. and I stole bed sheets off a clothesline Mm -hmm. and I'm sure that mind you they weren't very nice I'm sure the people that owned them really deeply missed them and if I'd had any other choice I would not have done that and if I knew who that was if I'd known who that was in the years later I would have gone and apologised and given them new sheets. Um, instead, when I, you know, literally when I, I know somebody who is in a dire situation and they have no bedding or whatever, I will do what I can to get them bedding. And uh, It's you know, interesting our experiences when we go through something like that and, and you just said, when I see people who need bedding, I, I want to give them bedding, but it's because of that experience that you had and the compassion that you were able to learn from that experience. Yes, exactly. And and this is the point with my life. My life has been extraordinary and it's been not easy in on any level. And, you know, um, I have literally been starving, you know, and had the choice like, I could either feed myself or feed my uh, son at that that time or my Mm. animals, and I've chosen to feed them. There have been periods in my life where I've gone days and days without eating because I had no money, I had no food, and and the priority was, you know, and I've gone and, and, and begged literally to get food for my animal. Uh, and my son. You know, we lived in my car. I remember there was a time when when Harley, my son, and our dog lived in my car. And, you know, so we would drive and find a place that we could park. And then I got a job, but it was working in a coffee shop and my shift would go from like um, 7 p.m. at night to 3 a.m. in the morning. So what I would do is I would park my car out the front of the coffee shop I would go in and work and I would whip out to my car, you know, as often as I could to make sure that my son was okay, Mm. you know, and sleeping. He was very young. I think he was about 18 months, two years of age at at that stage. Now, that was not ideal. That was terrible. But, you know, nobody would help me. Nobody would give me anywhere to live. Um, I had no money. I had to earn money so that I could convince a real estate agent to give me a place, which I did. I did. And, you know, that worked out. But I know what it is like to experience that. And it is not pretty. It is not fun. Right. And you you have talked a lot about, oh, excuse me, I want to 
add you into the screen. You've talked a little bit about your traumas and experiencing that. And you talked a little bit about how medical intuitives, there's many people that want to come into that position and yet they're not necessarily a good fit if they don't have an understanding of that, where they have built up a sense of compassion needed, a heightened state of that that you need in mm -hmm. order to really be able to hone in on those skills effectively. And to stand on your own two feet. I'll give you a little example. There was a lady that oh, probably 15 years ago I taught to be a uh, um, you know, I, I was teaching to be a medical intuitive. Now, she was a very nice lady um, and she was a psychologist uh, slash social worker. And I thought, you know, oh, yeah, she should be okay. And um, then I died and recovered and uh, came back. And other people were, you know, doing some of my teaching for me, including my husband and some of my previously um, graduated students, which was, you know, very kind of them. And anyway, and I noticed that this woman had become a bit odd towards me. So I said to her, how about we meet for a coffee? So we did. We went out and we met for a coffee and I said, what is wrong? And she said, oh, well, I'm leaving the course. And I said, yeah, okay, fair enough. It's not for everyone. Leave. And I said, but why? And she said to me, well, because my husband doesn't believe you. I said, what do you mean? Doesn't believe me. And what's it got to do with him? And she said, he's told me that there is no way that a person could be, as, be dead as long as you claim to be and still be walking and talking. Mm. And I thought, wow, and you're a psychologist and you're a social worker? Seriously? And you're listening to your husband give you advice, not even owning up to it yourself? And, and I did say to her, why would the ambulance officers lie? Why would the hospital lie? Don't you think the news stations would check their facts? Yeah, you had an immense amount of public mm. Uh, mm. news broadcast yeah. on that. I mean, it was an incredible mm. amount of notating oh. that experience. Yeah, it's fully fully documented. Yeah. Like, and why, why would I, who wants to be dead for that long? Well, I think really? people have a very difficult time accepting the things that are uncommon, accepting yeah. things that are out of the norm. And when we start talking about the societal standards, right, it's not yeah. common and it's, it frightens people. They go into this fear mode, fear mentality, and yeah. they push it away. They do things that are abrasive and even hurtful because yeah. it's that fear mentality yeah it is it is and you know there are a lot of things that I can do just on a like a physical human level because I've trained I've trained really really hard or you know I can't do them anymore because um, the whole dying thing but you know I was, when I was younger for instance I trained uh, to be an Olympic gymnast and I was up to yeah. trials 
for the Olympics when I injured my leg and managed to remove a tendon accidentally from my leg. And that, that ended that. Thank you, universe. And um, even after that and before that, I used to be able to do physical feats that were stunning. Right? And even I remember being pregnant with my first child and still doing backflips and cartwheels and people going, oh, you shouldn't be doing that while you're pregnant. And I'd be going, why not? Like, what difference does it make? I admit that when I got to about eight months, I did stop. <laughs> yeah. You know, funny. I have trouble believing that, which is actually very, very, very few people are not capable of doing that kind of thing if they train. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I wouldn't disagree with you if you're capable of it and you know what you're doing, then go for it. You know? Yeah. And it doesn't mean you should stop living your life. I remember at one point I was put on bed rest with one of the kiddos and I, it just, it wasn't happening. I couldn't do it. <laughs> I couldn't no. do it. And with my first, I, I, I was so ready to have that child that I was running and I was eating eggplant and all of the things that they say is going to activate. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, God. Some some of my babies. Oh, it was like, get out. Yeah. I did not enjoy pregnancy. A lot of people do, but not me personally. Yeah. Yeah, lots of people. I actually handled pregnancy, I would say, very, very well. Um, birth, no. Birth, every <laughs> time was, was, you know, uh, tough, tough, yeah. traumatic. You know, you know, that's an interesting topic too, Carmel, right? Because we, our human design is meant to go through this excruciating pain. I see your kitty cat yeah. <laughs> in the back. Very distracting. I love it. I'm a cat person, so I get it. My cat loves to talk during the show. She like automatically knows that that's cute to uh, be vocal. And so, but going back on track, if I can recall, we are designed to go through pain. Our bodies experience immense pain giving birth. And we're designed that way. So what if we thought about that with just our life experiences in general? Yeah, I think that actually is a very good point. Like we are as a species designed to go through pain because yeah. we, we don't, like, if, if we had a pain-free, comfortable, safe life as a child, we'd grow up very weak and distorted mm. we we wouldn't have you know the strength to like i i used to adore my body when i was younger because i lifted weights i was you know did bodybuilding on you know and gymnastics and all sorts of things and you know like i was tough, tough. which is one of the reasons i actually survived the last death experiences because because my body was in such brilliant shape. And um, so there wasn't so much to repair. Yeah. Well, uh, 
Yeah, absolutely. We're going to go into our first commercial. When we come back, I want to talk about how you have been trained because you talk about people who come to you and you train others to become a medical intuitive if yeah. it makes sense and you see that, yes, this is a good fit. And you too have experiences with learning some of the things that you had to learn. So stay tuned when we get back. So wow. we'd love to know what, what are some of the things, some of the people you talk about when you're given this task to yeah. do complete in life, right? It wasn't the direction that you wanted to go. You wanted to be a doctor okay. and then you wanted to be a vet and yep. something kept saying no and stopping you literally dead in your tracks and <laughs> directed you in a different location, right? In a different realm. So you had run into a few people along the way that you started learning to hone in on some of the skills. You said, well, I suppose if I'm supposed to show up this way, then I have to learn a few things. Can you tell us about those experiences? Yeah. Um, well, the first thing that I, I learned um, was that Spirit, despite belief, really only has shareable access uh, to information that that you know. And um, a lot of people don't understand that, but get this. If you end up with a guide who speaks Swahili and you've never heard Swahili, unless you channel them, unless you let them sit in you and, and channel, which is very durable. How are you going to speak Swahili? Mm. How are you going to understand when they speak Swahili to you? You have to have a, a commonality between you and the guides. And my my guides wanted to specialise in medical stuff and so they started introducing me to places and people that would give me that. Mm. Uh, for instance, I remember I had a lady, I, I used to be a fashion designer years ago and make clothes, which is why I love clothes and I, you know, love creating. <laughs> anyway, this woman came along to me uh, for a dress to be made and, you know, we got through it. We were actually up to the last fitting and um, she was pregnant. She came in and, and my guides, and I didn't even know their names at, at that stage, Basically, you know, they popped in and they said, Carmel, this is urgent. You need to tell this woman that her baby is in danger. She needs to go to the doctor right now. Mm -hmm. And I said to this woman, Patty, um, I'm sorry, you don't know this about me, but I'm actually a clairvoyant. I'm not really trained or whatever and I don't use it. But I've just been given this information. You need to deal with it. Well, she got such a fright that she left my business. 
she went straight to her doctors uh, how she managed it i don't know they did an ultrasound and they discovered that her baby uh, there's a rare kind of tumor that grows in the uterus only when you're pregnant and what happens is that the baby grows normal the tumor grows alongside it like a twin and then the tumor overtakes and basically consumes the baby and kills the baby mm. and this woman had struggled to get pregnant i mean struggled to get pregnant lots of you know stuff with that and they discovered this tumor and they were amazed so what they did is they put her in hospital and um you know stabilized her and whatever and then they did like a partial cesarean and mm. they removed the tumor and um, stitched back up left her in hospital and when the baby was viable they seized her again and put it down so you know that little girl is alive today because mm. of what i told this woman she came back after everything was done like i the dress was still there and i'm going where is this woman you know blah 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 and she eventually came back and she said oh you know it won't fit me now because you know it's my pregnancy but you know i'll take it like whatever and um she told me the story but from that i basically said to myself i need to learn i need to learn about the body because mm. i can't sort of talk and say i'm seeing this blobby thing yeah to communicate yeah that makes sense yeah yeah and I thought where am I going to learn anatomy and I thought I'll I'll teach myself so I went and got an anatomy book you know and it was as dry as dust and I thought oh my god this is terrible I can't learn this and then I was looking through the local paper one sort of like lunchtime and I just flicked open the paper thought oh wherever you know flicked it open and my eye immediately fell on an ad that was to learn clinical massage which is mm. soft or soft tissue physiotherapist therapy taught by ther physiotherapists themselves and amidst it, it was a year-long course and quite intensive twice a week every fourth weekend and amongst it you know you've got to learn anatomy and physiology and all and medical terminology and all that stuff and I thought screw it I'm gonna do it and it actually started that night. So I went, drove, like left my business, went to the school, enrolled, came home, and I went back that night. And that is how I learned, like, the the physical, biological structure of a, of a human body. And they went through everything, like vessels and blood cells and the mm. brain. Like, it was incredibly comprehensive because it was taught by medical people and um, I also learned how to you know like touch the body where the muscles go and what they do and mm -hmm. all this stuff. and um also met my second husband through that and um that was interesting and he had pretty much exactly the same experience he had he'd mocked and derided massage and he had friends with whom massage and he ended up doing this massage course and we met there. It took another five years before we actually started dating, but we met there. And um, then I thought to myself, well, I need to learn how to control talking to my guides rather than just them popping in and out, whatever. And I heard of this woman, uh, Jill Johnson was her name, and sadly deceased now, 
who was an amazing clairvoyant. She still is the best clairvoyant I've ever met. And um, she ran a circle. Now Nowadays you join a circle and there's like 20 or 30 people. It's outrageous. Mm. How can anybody actually learn when you've got that many people? It's, it's you know, not something I would do. But anyway, she would have five students at a time and there was no end to her training that was you know specific set so you know you were there for a year you were there for two years you might be there for three years it was when her guides said you were ready to graduate that you graduated so anyway i i had no idea how how things went i just rocked up to her address knocked on her door and introduced myself and she actually looked at me and said i've been waiting for you Mm. wow wow and i said please 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 will you teach me and she said well i've got quite a waiting list but as it happens i've got somebody graduating this week so next saturday come along at you know time 12 noon precisely don't be late so i did and which was extremely lucky and and so for a year I trained with Jill, a year and a half thereabouts, and then at about a year and a half she said to me, Carmel, you're ready to graduate. Next week is your final week. And I thought, wow. And she was a tough taskmaster. She did not, mm. she did not suffer fools. Mm. And, um, oh, can so, you, Carmel, I have to have you go back and say what you just said and explain that meaning because it's the second time I've heard it in my life. I've used it before. Mm -hmm. In fact, in a, <laughs> in a police interview before, mm -hmm. but Carmel, most people don't know what that means. What don't, won't suffer, I don't fools. suffer fools kindly. Yeah. Well, basically, you know, what that means when you say that is that, well, I don't suffer fools, gladly. When I'm in a session, I'll be more discreet. Uh, but, you know, if somebody was to say to me you know, that that they can do this, like, that, you know, that they're a clairvoyant and, and that they can read from the stars and whatever and tell you, mm. I think to myself, oh, shit. Because nobody can do that. You know, there really isn't anybody that can do that. And um, you know, some people just, because it's almost unprovable, and I do say almost because it is provable, you know, and people will make stuff up. Yeah, yeah. I don't like to make stuff up at all, and hence I have actually been tested by the University of Adelaide in South Australia. They ran quite a lot of testing on me to actually determine if I was clairvoyant or not. And their determination was that I was genuinely clairvoyant. What was that? Well, first off, I want to go back and say that I, I love the way that this person who came into your life and helped teach you and channel reliably how she ran her course and was 
ready to let go of the student when the time was ready, when they were ready. So there wasn't a set timing. You know, most of us go to school and it's a six month, nine month, two year, four year, what have you. And so I think that's uh, incredible and the way that it probably should be because everybody is ready in their own time. So I wanted to highlight that, that I think that's incredible. What was your experience when you went and had all of this testing done? How did you feel? Did you, did you want to do that? Were you excited to do that? So you could. I was terrified. I was terrified. I was, you know peeping bricks I was terrified mm. honestly like I was pretty convinced that I was clairvoyant but I'm thinking to myself what if they what if they determined that I'm not yeah what if my guides go away and leave me alone and I'm left like this mm. human going duh I don't know like and the testing was things like you know, they they had set up a mental room or space, for instance, and you had to get into that and then see what was in there. Or they had, like, cards set out or objects set out and um, you had to have a look at that from a distance clairvoyantly and tell them what the objects mm. were mm-hmm. or what the number was or, or whatever. And, you know, I literally, I was, you know, I was really scared. And I'm, I'm not ashamed of being scared. I think it would be a shame to be so cocky that you would just go whatever. You know, this gift that I have, unasked for as it was, I'm so grateful for it. And... I would be, there have been times in my life when it has been taken away from me. Uh, for instance, when I was recovering from dying the first year and a half or thereabouts, it was taken from me. And it was the most bizarre experience. And, and, and I, I'm not sure how people without this gift cope because it felt like I was in a box, you know. Like I sit here and the world feels expansive to me it just feels mm. like there's space all around me and I can move and stretch and without this gift I felt like the walls were closing in on me and every question a person asked me was an invasion and wow you know, that's it, an it incredible was, description mm. it really is thank you for for giving us insight on that description of how you felt because Mm. you've, you've been able to experience as an adult Mm. what it's like with the gift, what it's like without the gift and how that feels. So you're very descriptive in that. I really appreciate it. And it's, uh, thank you for sharing that the way that you felt too, of course, you felt frightened. Carmel, Mm. I'm certain that there's been many times in your life where you felt like you could have been burnt at the stake. Mm. Yeah. In many ways, I I have been in this life burnt at the stake. Um, 
because if you can imagine, if anybody can imagine what it is like to go see a medical doctor and no matter how you swing it, you need medical doctors and I am grateful for their presence. And there are some doctors that are brilliant friends of mine. But you go to see a doctor and they know that you are a medical intuitive and then they immediately start arguing with you about, you know, I, I go along and I say, look, I need this test done. Why? Why do you think it needs to be done? I don't want you to do that test. I don't think you need it. And I'm going, well, I'm telling you I do. Every disease that I've had, I've been the one who's diagnosed it and mm. I've told doctors that this is what I have. Um, and they don't like being told. Or I remember because, you know, obviously I've had a... Um, might not know I've had a brain tumour which has been removed twice and I've had radiation and at my the last appointment I attended for a radiation follow-up the radiation specialist whatever they're called came into the room sat down and looked at me crossed his arms and he said so admit to me that you're a liar and a scam artist I said excuse me what do you mean he said you with uh, all your, you know, hocus-pocus stuff that you do. I said, so you've locked me up? They said, yeah, and you're a liar. And it went on for that for the whole hour, mm. him trying to get me to admit that I'm a scam artist. And, and then he actually about, you know, 40 minutes in, he goes, all right, well, if you're so good, smarty pants, tell me what's wrong with you. And I looked at him and I said, you haven't paid me. I don't see anything unless you pay me. And he didn't like that. <laughs> but it's my living. This is, I don't do anything else. I'm, I don't work in a supermarket. I don't run a car wash. I don't walk dogs. Yeah. This is, this is how I survive, feed my kids, put my kids through school, you know, yeah. donate yeah. to charities, pay my mortgage through this. And, yeah, um, that's that's your gifts. It's a service. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So this guy then he pissed me off so much that I said I, I actually did say something to him, which is very naughty. I mean, I don't normally do it, but obviously I do sometimes. And I went to him. Well, it's like that back injury you have, you know, whatever. And he goes, "How do you know about that? Have you Googled me?" And I said, "Mate, I don't even know what your name is. <laughs> I didn't." I had no idea who you are. Yeah. Anyway, I left that appointment, got up before it ended, walked out, complained about him to the hospital, and he was moved away from dealing his back into research and still in research. Yeah. Because yeah. um, that was that was totally immoral. Well, it, it absolutely it threatens um, when we talk about the the medical profession. And, you know, they're taught so many things and, and there's so many incredible things. Like you said, we have to have them. It's an incredible blessing. But when you go outside of that and present, present something different outside of what they've spent years and years learning, it threatens their credibility. And so that's exactly why people become so defensive. And there's that that miscommunication and the buttings of heads 
unfortunately. Now, this has been such an, an extreme issue for you at certain points in your life where you felt very, uh, and, and again, lack of a better term, but like you were being burnt at the stake. It has altered the way that you want to show up, if at all. And I'm, I'm glad that you have, Carmel, fought through that and you continue to keep showing up. Incredible. Mm -hmm. But it has come to a point or some points in your life where you are afraid to do certain things. And one of those instances is the book that you wrote for your children. <laughs> you didn't want to yeah. publish it because yeah. you thought that it would knock down your credibility. Yeah. I've actually written two books for my children. And um, the one that they love is a book called Niche Blood, which is a uh, fantasy book set in today and you know they tell so many people about them about that but I, I wrote that with them and I thought if I publish this then people will look and go ah oh, obviously she's a fabricator because she's written this fictional book and I've also written a book which is more for me than the kids or more for older people called Rudyard or A Waste of Time and that is about Basically, it's a modern job, like God and the devil have a bet uh, and mm. basically the world hangs on getting this guy who's depressed and whatever to actually do something meaningful with his life. And if he can't, uh, the world will go into chaos. And if he can, then the world will continue to develop and grow. And I'm actually starting to think that maybe I was tapping into the future and the world has gone into chaos and budget failed. <laughs> Carmel, I would love to read that book, by the way. Yeah. Um, oh, it's so much fun. It is so much fun. Yeah. And um, so, you know, just in my drawers over there. And I've, you know, I've written so many short stories too, like really insightful short stories and poetry. I I was actually a poet for a long time. That's where my my writing mainly focused for a long time. And I did actually win an award. International Poet of the Year, and um, I flew to Washington, D.C. to oh, accept an award. And That's then, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, you're very, very talented. You're very witty. You are very funny. I love that about you. And you. so you, you absolutely have grown and changed and expanded, Carmel. You know, so you've had those experiences in your past how do you show up now? You know, I I do my best to ignore. You know, just just ignore. And I'm kind of used to being lonely. You know, it's like often uh, people will say, you know, I'm having a party, but I, um, you know. Like, I'm not inviting you because. But they do the same thing to my daughter. Like, my my daughter doesn't get invited to her cousins who are the same age parties because people will think she's strange. Hmm. You can see the acceptance on my face. Yeah. Do you I think that maybe, is that, do you feel like that's a cultural thing? A You know, I'm. We know I'm based in the U.S., you're in Australia, and, and for me, there's many places 
here and across the world where those it, it is very difficult to be something that's a little outside of the box. Definitely. And so I'm just wondering if you think that that's a big part of it. And what would it be like, Carmel, if you relocated and, and you went somewhere else? What would life be like? I don't know. But it's, it's you know, something I've thought about a lot, but I don't think I could ever do because I have um, all my family here. And I am a big, big advocate of family connection you know if I wasn't close to them I I get I guess I would move but in particular my my four children um, we're friends you know I'm like I'm I'm their mum but you know Howie's 42 he doesn't need a mum you know and the youngest child I've got is 20 25 I think I've forgotten her age 26 25 26 Whatever. I would love to relocate to Inverness in Scotland. Mm. Oh, <laughs> God. Speaking of love language there. Yeah, that would be my spot of choice. I have a lot of relatives in Scotland because I am of Scottish descent. I'm a Sinclair, you know. Oh, okay. I'm a Sinclair. <laughs> I'm a Sinclair clan. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's funny. Sinclair is a small but mighty clan. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> what are the colours? Uh, it depends. We have a hunting tartan, a dress tartan and an everyday tartan. Mostly mm -hmm. uh, hunter green and red and white. Yeah, Strong. well. I love the dress you have today or the shirt. I don't know if it's a shirt or a dress, but it's yeah, absolutely. It's shirt. It's and I've got, dragons. I've got dragon earrings. I, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if you're making these things, but I'm going to have to get access to your store, Carmel, because it's absolutely gorgeous, stunning. I love the style. And we have a lot in common in that regard. Hmm. Yeah, anything fun, you know, and it's got to be fun and elegant. I mean, you have to look. Mm, I love that. Even when I still elegant. ride motorbikes, I, I like if you love my kit. Like I have the most beautiful. Like I either wear white leather jackets or silver. It's mm. nice. And the white one has like silver, you know, panels in it. And then I'll wear denim jeans, but they've got to be boot cut. And a belt that I've yeah. especially made. And I have white boots and black boots and high heel boots. Like I have the most, you know, amazing motorcycle kit. Because <laughs> I like to look fabulous. Yeah. Oh, I love that about you. <laughs> Carmel, you have been fabulous as always. Is is there anything else that we've missed today that you want to talk about? Anything else that you want to share with the audience today? You know, I think the thing that I would like people to go away with is that life doesn't end when this life ends. It's scary to die. Dying is a scary thing. Don't ever kid yourself. 
it is. But some of the best parks in theme parks are the scariest too. And mm. you just don't achieve anything without a little bit of fear. It's healthy. It's really healthy to do that. And apart from that, it's been so much fun to talk to you, April. You are such a good interviewer. Oh, so much fun. thank you. you with a lovely me. family, with a lovely, lovely, what I've met of your family. Yeah, thank yeah. you. In distance. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. That's wonderful. My pleasure. It's it's always a pleasure to have you. And you were a guest very, very early on. You were the second guest of the birth of the show. And so it absolutely is very meaningful. You have set the tone of, you know, some incredible journeys and stories of what the Wellness Driven Life Show gives to mm -hmm. the world. So thank you so much for being a part of that. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much for tuning in. You can find out more about Carmel Bell and where to reach her, her social media handles in the description mm -hmm. below. And you can also find access to her book, which is an incredible book, I might say. It is a book that is very difficult to put down. So be prepared to spend some time with the cat cuddled up on the couch with your favorite blanket and read her incredible book. So goodbye for now, and we will see you later. Thanks,